Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. On today's show, my guest is David Meerman Scott. David is a business performance consultant, an entrepreneur, and a best-selling author of a new book called Fanocracy, Turning Fans into Customers and Customers into Fans. David co-wrote this book with his daughter, and so we talk a little bit about what it's like to work with someone you love as a colleague and a peer. We also talk about the art and science behind turning customers and employees into fans. And then at some point, we just talk about fun things like music and art and the Grateful Dead. So if you're into a far-ranging conversation that covers neuroscience, marketing, sales, and music, well, you're in for a treat. So sit tight, and I'll be right back with more David Meerman Scott, and let's fix work. Work is broken, and so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hello, David. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Hey, it's great to be here, Laurie. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's my treat, my pleasure, my honor. We've got a few mutual friends and connections, yet we've never met in real life. And I'm just a big fan. And oh, admirer. thank you. Yeah, yeah. And for those of you in the audience who are listening today and don't know my friend David, well, I'll let him introduce himself. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're all about? Sure. So I started on a bond trading desk, hated it, but loved the information behind the bond trading desk. So I spent 15 years in the financial information world, 10 of those years in Asia, in Tokyo and in Hong Kong, and then moved back to the Boston area. I was working for a company called Thomson Reuters. They fired me back in 2002. And I've been happily unemployed on my own for the last 17 years. I'm really happy with that. Well, yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, you're an entrepreneur, a noted one, a best-selling author, and a business growth strategist. What hat are you wearing today? Why are you here? What are you passionate about? <laughs> I am so passionate about the idea that in this crazy world that we're living in now, where the digital platforms are so chaotic, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all that. And everybody's trying to sell us stuff online. And you don't even know if the people trying to sell you stuff online are robots. And it's kind of annoying me. And I kind of take it personally, because one of the books I wrote in 2007 is when it originally came out called The New Rules of Marketing and PR has become a really popular title in the whole online marketing world. It's sold 400,000 copies in English. It's in 29 other languages. But people are abusing those ideas. <laughs> so what I'm really, really excited about is the idea that we can now go back to a true human connection. And I think the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of this crazy, superficial online communications. And think about the polarization of the political world, and a lot of that's online. So I think the pendulum is swinging back to a true human connection. And I'm really excited about that. You know, I think we've gone too far in one direction. Well, let's talk about your new book, Fanocracy. What's it about? Who's it for? Who cares about fans? Like, what's going on <laughs> in that world? I know, right? Who cares about fans? What it's about is this true human connection. I co-wrote it with my daughter, Reiko. She's 26 years old. And we had such a great time writing it together. We started with this idea of, geez, we're like massive geeks, massive fans of things. I love live music. Huge, huge, huge live music fan. And I've been to 
over 780 live music concerts in my life, rock mainly. I actually, I'm such a geek, I keep a spreadsheet, including 75 Grateful Dead concerts. And I said to Reiko, she's, what is it with this music fandom that I've got? And she says, Daddy, I am a Harry Potter fan, not only, and I knew this, of course, but not only has she read every book multiple times, seen every movie multiple times, gone to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park multiple times in Orlando, went to London to go to the studio tour, but she wrote a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco, <laughs> where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. It's a full-blown oh, novel. Oh. She posted it on a fan fiction site and it's okay. been downloaded thousands of times. So we geeked out about how much of a fan we are about these things we love. And we decided to collaborate on this book to see, can the same idea of fandom apply for anybody or any business or any person, you know, doctors and dentists and B2B companies and consumer brands and nonprofits and government agencies. And after five years of research and writing the answers, absolutely yes, that it applies to everything. And it's a really super cool way to generate attention and grow business. Well, I think it's incredibly sweet when we talk about a human connection to art, to music, to books, to literature. It's a little weird for me to think about being a fan of my dentist, but I am <laughs> a fan of my dentist. Uh -huh. I love that guy. He's so nice to me. So who is this book for? You've talked a little bit about B2B. You've talked a little bit about some service providers. Who's this book for and really what is it about? So who it's for, it's for anybody who wants to grow business by developing a human connection, by growing fans. And what we did was we looked at what's going on in the world of fandom and what are the specific ideas that you can apply to grow fans? And my daughter, Reiko, did an undergraduate in Columbia in neuroscience. So one of the things that we really want to do is look at the neuroscience of fandom. So a particular area of neuroscience I found fascinating, ended up being a full chapter in the book Fanocracy, is we looked at why do people become fans of your dentist, for example, or The Grateful Dead or Harry Potter or NASA? has tens of millions of fans and there's people wear t-shirts of NASA. It's crazy. So one of the things we learned is that our brains are hardwired to develop really strong connections with people who are close to us, part of the same tribe of people. So if I'm at a great concert, I'm together with like-minded people, that's a really strong human connection. And there's a neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall who identified different levels of proximity. And further than 20 feet is called public space. Between four feet and 20 feet is called a social space. And then inside of four feet is called personal space. The closer you get to someone, the more powerful the human connections are, which is why when we become fans of something, we're part of a group of similar people and we have this amazing relationship with them. That can be built by organizations, by companies, because when you get closer to somebody and you're speaking the same language, you're part of the same tribe, it's a really powerful connection. You get into a crowded elevator, there's some negative vibes, it's because you don't know those people. It's that same ancient brain kicking in. If you're with your tribe, you feel great. If you're with people you don't know, your fight or flight instinct kicks in and you feel kind of weird about it. So simply, 
anybody who wants to get closer to their customers, this is a book for, and we have all these different prescriptions in it. This particular prescription comes from neuroscience. It says, get closer to the people who you want to become your fans, literally physically closer to people. There's another aspect that comes from neuroscience that I think is kind of hysterical, but also so effective because people say, David, I'm not a dentist. I don't get next to my patients. I can't <laughs> develop fandom that right. way. You know, I run a business. It's virtual. I've got customers all over the world. Well, there's a concept in neuroscience called mirror neurons. And mirror neurons are the part of our brain that fires when we see or even hear someone do something as if we are doing it ourselves. I'm now holding up a lemon and a slice of lemon. Those of you who are listening in obviously can't see me hold it up, but I am. And I'm going to take a bite of the lemon. And it's really powerful, this lemon. It makes my eyes close up instinctively. My mouth puckers up. I've got saliva going in my mouth. It's a really powerful thing to bite into a lemon. Lori, did you feel that lemon just a little bit? Yeah, just a little bit. I felt isn't it in my weird? bones, actually. <laughs> it's like really weird, isn't it? And even yeah. if you're just listening in, you might even been been able to taste just a little bit of lemon on the end of your tongue. So here's where this is really interesting to develop fans. If you use photographs and video in your marketing, in your advertising, as you communicate with people on your website, in your social media. And that's cropped as if you're within four feet from somebody, sort of cocktail party distance. That builds a really strong connection with people virtually through the power of mirror neurons because our brain tells us that those people are actually next to us. Not virtually next to us, thousands of miles away, just on a video camera. Those people are actually next to us, which is why we feel we know movie stars. So this is just one prescriptive technique that we identified out of about 10 of them where you can use to develop fans and get virtually closer to your customers and grow business as a result. So anybody who feels that they want to do that kind of thing to grow business, that's who this book is for. That was a long riff. I recognize. Yeah, I, I didn't give it. you. A, I didn't give you a chance to break in there. <laughs> I'm I'm okay with that. I, anytime I can shut up, I'm happy with that and drink my tea here. You know, as you were speaking, what really resonated with me is how not easy it is to get fans, right? But if you do it right, it's easy to nail it, right? You just get people to love you and how terrible it is when we blow it, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, like the opportunity is just lost then and it would probably be so difficult to earn them back. So talk a little bit about that for brands or for companies, individuals that are really struggling either because they've lost some fans or they're just struggling to get fans to follow. Like, what do you recommend? Yeah. So I think that the idea of transparency and honesty and a true interest in the people that you're trying to reach are incredibly powerful. And there's a lot of companies out there for whatever reason, don't really follow those prescriptions. You know, for whatever reason, maybe the kind of MBA programs that the bosses went through, it's all about the spreadsheet and the quarterly earnings. Maybe the sales department, it's all about getting that deal in as opposed to then servicing the customers in an appropriate way. Some organizations simply don't tell the truth and it's a sad situation. So I think that the idea of being honest, of being transparent, of being truthful is really important. Another aspect we learned, which was really interesting to me, is that if you practice the idea that once your product or service is out there in the world, 
you no longer own it, it's owned by the fans, can be a really interesting way to let go. You know, we say let go of your creations in a way that you let the fans take over. I'll give you a couple of examples. So Adobe makes the Photoshop software, among many other software products. And my daughter, Reiko, my co-author, loves to do art with Photoshop. And she's part of a community of people, a group of fans of Photoshop who love to talk about the art that they create. You know, how do you do a particular brush stroke or how do you get a particular color? And they share their artwork and it's a really vibrant community. But the interesting thing is that Adobe actively discourages that. Number one, I know it's ridiculous, right? Uh, Number one is that they don't like individual consumers who are using their software to make art because they believe that their real customers are business to business where they're buying multiple units and and the whole organization uses it. The second thing is they tell them how to talk about Adobe Photoshop. And here's what they say. You may not say that you Photoshopped something. You must say that you manipulated the image using Adobe trademark R, Photoshop trademark R software. And Reiko says, Daddy, every, everything my friends and I are talking about online sounds like a fan because we are fans yeah. of Adobe. Although I don't know why at this point. That's and terrible. Everything that. that Adobe <laughs> is doing sounds like it sounds like they they want us to like be some kind of automatron. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'll contrast that with a company called iRobot. They make the Roomba vacuum cleaners, which are, you know, kind of funny. <laughs> Robotic vacuum cleaners are funny. And even funnier because there's a whole subculture of fans of Roomba who love to take videos of their pets riding on the Roomba. And I don't know, maybe you've seen some of those, Lori. They're hysterical. And there's like tens of (laughs) millions of views of these videos of dogs and cats and even other animals hitching rides on Roombas around the room. Does not take much to entertain me. So I know, right? I know, right? You could like while away the hours by watching the animals on the Roomba. But what iRobot company that makes Roomba could have done is what Adobe did and said, oh, this is not an approved use of our product. You must take those videos down. But instead, they celebrate the idea that the fans love these videos. So letting go of your creations and letting the fan community take over is a really great way to, you asked me, people maybe aren't developing fans or how can they develop the fan base? And this is one way, you know, transparency, honesty, letting those fans take over. Great tips. You know, as you were speaking, I was also thinking about the complicated role of employees as fans, right? Because it's hard to be a fan of something that has financial control over you, that has control over your future, that informs how you're saving for a new home, retirement, your children's education. And yet the best employees, the most engaged employees, the happiest employees, they feel a sense of autonomy. They feel like all of their needs are being met. And they certainly, I think, would call themselves fans when they're engaged well. So do you have any examples of that and when that works well? Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is I'm very, very conscious of the outward manifestations of fandom. I mentioned earlier, there's tens of millions of people who are fans of NASA that wear the t-shirt all over the world. I was walking down the street in 
one of the islands of the Seychelles, which is on off the eastern coast of Africa, just above Madagascar in the it's Indian Ocean. It's on my Ocean. bucket list. Yeah, it's I know am, where that it's is. It's amazing. I was, there, <laughs> I was there three weeks ago. It's amazing. You should oh, definitely man. go. It's a long way away, but it's totally worth it. There is somebody walking down the street with a NASA t-shirt on, oh, which is fascinating to yeah. me. So there are people who are happily wear the t-shirt, the hat, put the sticker on the computer of the company that they work for. I see it all the time. It's really interesting. We spoke with dozens of CEOs about how to make fans of employees and how that powerful fandom of the employees who work for their companies then translate to growing fans of a business. And the bottom line of this that we found, which was, which was surprising to us, I'll sum up in three words, which is actually coined by my daughter and in the book is this, passion is infectious. Passion is infectious. So what we mean by passion is infectious is that people who bring passion to their work for things outside of work, and when those companies allow those employees to exercise those passions, they become passionate about the place they work, and then that passion is infectious. It radiates out to the customers and potential customers. So let's say somebody is a marathoner and they're training for a marathon. That's passionate. They're passionate about that. The company would be wise to say, sure, you need to take every afternoon from three o'clock off for the next two months for training. Please go right ahead and do that because we know that's important for you. And then, you know, figure out ways to make it up, maybe on the weekends or whatever. Or trust them that they don't need to make it up, right? You know, right. <laughs> I think that's the other thing. Stop counting hours. That's right. Work, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. exactly but right. it is so challenging for not just American companies, but for global companies to really think about labor employees as partners, as fans, and not just people who are an extension of a budget to get things done, right? And so the idea of employment is really turned on its head when you start to think about employees as fans, but the potential, the opportunity is there, you know? It is there. The potential is there. One of the examples we cite in the book is with HubSpot. And I've been on the advisory board of HubSpot since 2007. They're a, a marketing and sales and customer service automation software platform. And so I've worked closely with Brian Halligan, the CEO, we're actually buddies. We wrote a book together called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead because we're both massive Grateful (laughs) Dead fans. I know, right? (laughs) I I love it. I mean, it's like two guys. Of course, that's the book that they would write. (laughs) Of course. All right. (laughs) And interestingly, just as an aside, there are so many HubSpot employees who love the fact that the CEO wrote a book called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. Yeah. It's like, what, what more do I need to tell you about my CEO than he wrote this book? And another fun fact about Brian is he bought Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, of course. Jerry Garcia's favorite guitar is called Wolf. Brian bought that guitar for $1.9 million at auction. The auction went to support the Southern Poverty Law Center, a nice nonprofit. And that was another thing that's like, it's weird. It's fandom. You know, he's a fan of the Grateful Dead. And, you know, a lot of CEOs may not think that that's something that's appropriate. But he's like, yeah, why not? I'm a huge fan of the Grateful Dead. I have the money. I'm the co-founder and CEO of this company. It's worth $6.5 billion on the stock market. Why not if I want to spend nearly $2 million on the guitar? 
Yeah. And the employees actually loved it. The employees thought it was a really great thing. But HubSpot has a, a culture code that they put out. It's on SlideShare. It's been viewed like 5 million times. And they share their code. And they've got a number of things that they do to bring those employees in as valued partners. I think that was the word you used, that they're really people who are part of the same team, not the input to the widget making. And they have a wiki for internal use only, a wiki where every employee can be a part of that wiki. And they decided that they wanted to be so transparent about the information that they share on their wiki that they actually had to make every single employee an insider from the perspective of the SEC because of the sensitive nature of the information that was being shared. They've got, you know, the vacation policy is take what you need. They're doing a lot of things right. And we spoke with Katie Burke, who's the chief people officer at HubSpot is her title. And we also spoke with Brian Halligan, the CEO of HubSpot, about how they're doing it. And they really just actually set out to make their employees fans of the company. And whether you believe the ratings or not, Glassdoor just ranked them as the number one company in the entire country to work for in the year 2020 and based on employee surveys. But I know hundreds of HubSpot employees. I've been on their advisory board since 2007. The employees really do love the company. And they have an annual conference called the Inbound Conference every year. 25,000 people show up. It is a love fest. It's a love. It's an amazing event. I've spoken at it every single year. It's a love fest because the employees and the customers have a chance to be physically close to one another, hearkening back to what we talked about before in the close proximity with one another. But everyone there is part of a tribe and everyone there is working to make marketing and sales and customer support better through the software HubSpot creates and the work that the people who use HubSpot are doing. So as an example, I think they're doing a very good job. And I can say that with certainty just because I've been involved and I've seen it. I'm not an employee. I'm seeing it from an outward manifestation. Yeah, I love a good case study though to remind me and cynical listeners in the audience that people are really trying to fix work. Like that's really important to have those real life examples. Yeah. They really are trying to fix work. I really, I truly believe that they do so many things to try to fix work. And just one more example on HubSpot is I'm giving a presentation in very early January at an event called the Pendulum Summit in Dublin. And HubSpot's Dublin office is their European headquarters. They have 750 people in Dublin. And I was on the phone yesterday with the head of diversity and inclusion and culture for HubSpot Europe. And she was so excited because I said, hey, can I just come and give a little talk and talk about what it's like to have been working with HubSpot since 07? And she's like, yeah, 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 let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And she planned it. And there's going to be like 300 people show up. It's awesome. You know, yeah, it's just that is know, great. so many different things that they're doing, which I think are really valuable. Really important. Thank you for sharing that example. And I would imagine that as you wrote this book, there are things that didn't make it in the book or that you forgot to write. You know, as an author myself and working on this, I know that there are things that I thought were precious that I eventually had to cut, you know. (laughs) Kill your darlings, right? Right, right, right. And so I just wonder, is there something in the book that didn't make it that you wish would have made it? 
We had so many stories that we wrote about the case study aspect of it, interviewing interesting people aspect of it was really, really important to us. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm a live music fan. And so I love getting live music references as much as I can into the book. And we interviewed a couple of musicians for the book. We interviewed a couple of music technology companies for the book. And at one point, my daughter's like, Daddy, we know. No, I mean, um, we don't need any more music references. You know, I think I think you can safely cut this part of the book. And I'm like, yeah, you're kind of (laughs) right. Well, I am equally fascinated about your relationship with your daughter, because I know writing a book as a solo experience is daunting enough. But then you have a collaborator come Mm. in and it's like, whoa, the game has changed. So what was that like to partner with someone so close to you to write a book? It was the best thing that the two of us have ever done together. It was really, really wonderful. And there's a few things that come to mind as being really surprising, I think, to both of us. Number one, when we started out, she was 21 years old at the time when we started out five years ago. And very much I was the dad, she was the daughter. She was just about to graduate from Columbia University. I was paying her tuition. She didn't yet have her own apartment. She was living in our house under the roof I was paying for. So when she started, it was a hierarchical relationship when we started working together. But we very, very quickly realized that wasn't going to work. There's no way that this book could have turned out well if I was the boss. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 <laughs> kind of that. like, you know, it's kind of like some of the themes you talk about as in work, you know. If one person's always the boss and makes all decisions, it's not as effective as if you have a team. And so really quickly, I'm I'm talking within weeks, it's like this isn't going to work. She has to be able to tell me that my writing is awful. She has to be able to tell me that this particular story is not going to work for the book. So we figured that out really, really quickly. The fact that we are equals in five years of research writing and promoting this book has meant that our relationship has really gone on to a different level in a really, really positive way. And I, I love, I love it. I love it. You know, she became a, a young adult. And then she became an equal. So it was really pretty awesome. The second thing which was also really surprising is we originally wrote the book in one voice. It was we, you know, so the book was going along. It was one voice and it wasn't working. And we shared it with some people. This is before we had a publisher. Um, We ended up going with Penguin Random House's portfolio division. But before we had a publisher, we're showing it around to people and people were polite, but it wasn't working and we could tell. So what we did was we ended up writing individual chapters. So it's like chapter four by David, chapter five by Rico. Yeah, yeah, you can see that. And her voice was able to come through and my voice was able to come through. We edited each other and we had some outside editors who worked with us. But very, very, very much you hear Rako's voice in her chapters and my voice in my chapters. And that was a really important decision to make. So in a way that also made us closer together because her writing is beautiful and it's way better than mine. <laughs> so being able, being able to recognize that the daughter's writing is better than mine. Pretty it was good. eye-opening and really interesting. Well, dude, as we wrap up this conversation, the one thing that really sticks with me is that you have fixed work for yourself. Like you've gone from behind the desk, you know, all the way to New York Times bestselling author, you know, just a father who gets to collaborate with his daughter. I mean, what a fantastic career and personal journey. So it has been wonderful. Yeah, it still yeah. is wonderful. And it comes with a sacrifice, right? And it comes with a little uncertainty. That's mm-hmm. the life of an entrepreneur. Yes. But yes. I wonder if you have any 
tips, thoughts, reflections on your journey as we start to end the conversation that you can leave with our listeners that may have them thinking about their journey a little bit differently? Absolutely. So a few things come to mind. The first one is, I think work-life balance is BS. And the reason I say that is because it implies that those are two different things. But for me, my life is my work. My work is my life. Nothing that I do feels like work. It feels like fun, you know? And I, gosh, I get to talk with you right now. This is wonderful, you know? I this hope is so. yeah. It is. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's great. And I get to write about the things that I love. I get to be on a stage, which I consider my art to be on a stage and deliver a presentation. I'm, I'm a student of public speaking and our mutual friend, Nick Morgan. And I have worked together on my speaking skills for a long time. And that's really important to me. It doesn't feel like work. It's really, really interesting that way. And, you know, I am a massive fan of the Grateful Dead, which I mentioned numerous times in the last few minutes. And I get to make the Grateful Dead part of my work by writing about them, by going to shows and, and so on. I'm also a massive fan of the Apollo Lunar Program. I wrote a book called Marketing the Moon. That was turned into a PBS American Experience miniseries, three-part miniseries that premiered in the middle of 2019. I was an executive producer on it. I mean, gosh, none of that stuff feels or sounds like work. So I love to tell people that I've been happily unemployed for the last 17 years because it doesn't feel like I'm working. And I think that this is something that many, many other people have the opportunity to carve out for themselves. And it may not take the form of what I'm doing, which is as an entrepreneur running my own thing, you know, it may be you can figure out how to do that within a company or part-time within a company and part-time your own thing, but start a nonprofit. And there's all sorts of different ways to achieve it. But gosh, you know, you spend so much time at work. You really need to make it something that is your passion. Well, what I heard in your story was that you didn't let getting fired be the end of your story. And that's so many people who have their self-worth and their identity so tied to their job title so that when adversity strikes or something bad happens at work, they get caught up in that story and they don't look to tomorrow. They don't have a vision for the future. And it sounds like you've always had a vision of work. And that vision was that work shouldn't be work. I mean, I'm not going to kid you. It was not fun to get fired because I didn't see it coming. Well, I kind of saw it coming. Everybody sees it coming, dude. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, yeah, I saw it coming, but I didn't know when. I mean, I knew it was, I knew it was going to happen. I didn't know what year, you know, I just, it was, it, you know, when you get to be a certain age, you're no longer useful in the eyes of many employers. But that was a gift. It truly was a gift because what I ended up with Pretty soon after that, just a year or two, was something that was way better in every way. More money, more fun, more interesting experiences, better relationships with the people that I was working with. I mean, everything was better. So it was absolutely a gift. Change in your life, I think, should be seen as a gift. And I've always tended to go the more unusual route. You know, I think back to when I was 26 years old, and it's ironically my daughter's age right now, when I was 26 years old, I was working for a financial economic consulting company on Wall Street. And I had a choice of being a sales manager and remaining in the New York Wall Street office or going to Tokyo to open an office in Asia. And I raised my hand and said, I don't know anyone in Asia. I don't speak any languages in Asia. I don't know what the hell I'm doing here, but I'm signing up for this because it sounds like a wonderful adventure. And taking the path of most adventure for me has proven to be very, very effective. 
It's a gift to hear your story. Thanks for being a guest today. If people want to learn more about you, where do they go on the internet? Do they just hit the Google? I mean, what's the story? <laughs> That's yeah. so kind of you. It's been a wonderful to be here as well. So I use my middle name professionally because I'm the only David Meerman Scott on the entire planet. So if you go to the Google machine and enter David Meerman Scott, you find me. There's tons and tons and tons of David Scotts. So that doesn't work. On the socials, I'm DM Scott. That's D-M-S-C-O-T-T. And if you're interested in learning more about fanocracy, turning fans into customers and customers into fans, we've got a website at www.fanocracy.com. Well, we will have all of that in our show notes and on the blog and everywhere I am, you and your information will be. So thanks again for being a guest on Let's Fix Work. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Meerman Scott. If you're interested in learning more, the show notes are available at laurierudeman.com forward slash Let's Fix Work dash 89. Let's Fix Work was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina and Boston, Massachusetts, and produced by Danny Osmond at Emerald City Productions. If you like what you hear, we'd love to hear your feedback at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes. 